All right. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here on the 4th of July weekend. Ex extra points for being here on a holiday weekend. Um, so if you're here today, I'm happy for you because we have come to one of my favorite passages in the book of Ephesians, and this is what I would call truly a feel-good passage. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to where we left off uh, two weeks ago, which is Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. And uh, do you know, Alex, if uh, there's anything back there that can be done to make the clicker work? Oh, okay. Okay. So you'll, maybe you'll just advance it? Is that? Okay, great. Thanks. A hand for Alex, because because Caleb, our tech person, is not here today, and Caleb is like never not here. This is like the one one Sunday a year that he misses. So uh, Alex and Paul have uh, stepped in, and they're doing a great job so far. So thank you. <laughs> All right. So in the passage that we're going to look at. Paul is going to tell the Ephesians what he's been praying for them. He talked about this a little bit earlier in the book, but he's going to go into more detail now uh, about the subject of what he's praying for them. Now, I would guess that most of the time, if someone said to you, I'm praying for you, it would be about something like, you know, your health. I'm praying that you'll feel better. Or, you know, I'm praying that you'll get a job. Or, um, I'm praying that you will find comfort after a loss, something like that. And those are all great things to be praying for one another. Uh, the Bible encourages us to, uh, rather than being anxious, to take all of our requests to God with prayer and thanksgiving. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. But in the passage that we're looking at, Paul's prayers are going to be focused on other things. Um, and there are things that we all should be praying for one another and that we should all want others to be praying for us. They're the things that we need even more than physical health and employment and that sort of thing, as important as those things are. So what are they? Well, let's read the passage. Uh, let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the chance to open the scriptures together, and we just invite your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and our minds. Illuminate these words for us. Help us to attend to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And we'll pause here for just a moment. In the ancient world, one of the ways that you demonstrated authority over someone was by naming them. Some of you might remember that in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, God gives Adam the authority to name the animals, right? That was a uh, representative of the fact that Adam, humanity, has authority over the animals, right? Dominion over the rest of, of the earth. And that makes sense, that giving somebody a name would be a sign of authority over them. Uh, this morning, I met Jeff, and if Jeff had said, hi, my name is Jeff, and I said, hi, Jeff, I think I'm going to call you Carl, 
he would rightfully be upset about that, right? Because I would be assuming a position over authority of him that over him that I have the right to call him whatever I want, right? And that's not the way it works. <laughs> so when Paul says that he kneels before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, what he is saying is I am praying to the one who has authority over every family, meaning every nation, every ethnicity, every people group that you can think of, this God has authority over all. And it was a big deal for Paul to say that, right? Because he was saying this God doesn't just have authority over the Jews, right? But all of the Gentile nations as well. So this is what Paul prays to the one who has authority over all people. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right. Let's look more closely at what Paul prays for. I have a list of three main requests. Number one, that you may have power. That you may have power. He writes, I pray that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, if I were to say, I am praying that God will give you power, most people I know would not hesitate to give a hearty amen, amen to that, right? Who doesn't want power? But it's important to recognize what kind of power Paul wants the Ephesians to have, right? He doesn't say, I pray that God may strengthen you with power to beat up everyone who opposes you. And he doesn't say, I pray that God may strengthen you with power to accomplish all of your financial goals and dominate the marketplace. And he doesn't say, I pray that God may strengthen you with power to gain political control over the Roman Empire. He doesn't say anything like that. The power Paul asks for is not the kind of power that many of us think of when we think of that word power, right? It is a strength in our, what? Our inner being, right? It's a strength of spirit. It's a strength of character, a strength of conscience. And that's the kind of power that we really need, and that's the kind of power that God wants to give us. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings uh, books and movies. And at the center of that story is the ring of power, right? Sometimes we think that what we really need is the ring of power. But what we really need is strength in our inner being to not be corrupted by power whenever we have a chance to have it, right? In the Lord of the Rings, 
the ring of power usually makes whoever has it crazy, right? Whoever get, who gets near it, whoever gets near it kind of goes crazy. The truly powerful person in the Lord of the Rings is not the person who possesses the ring, but the person who's actually capable of being indifferent to the ring, right? That's the person who has real power. So what does it look like when we have strength or, or power in our inner being? Well, maybe it's easier to recognize what it doesn't look like. So I've come up with a list of what it looks like when we lack strength in our inner being. Obviously, Paul doesn't give us this exact list, so you can take this for what it's worth, but this is what I came up with. When we don't have power in our inner being, we are very easily offended. We're insecure, right? So one wrong word can set us off. When we don't have power in our inner being, other people's opinions carry way too much weight for us. We're always worried about what everybody else thinks about us. When we don't have power in our inner being, we're easily controlled by feelings of fear and lust and anger. Okay, all of us experience fear and lust and anger, but when we don't have power in our inner being, the instant we feel these emotions, we're immediately controlled by them. We, we're powerless against them. It's just like the wave comes over us and we're carried by it. We're like puppets on a string, and the strings are the fear, the lust, and the anger, right? When we don't have power in our inner being, we can be easily controlled by money, right? We are just for sale to the highest bidder. Whatever we do, whatever we're going to think, right? We just follow where the money goes, where the profit is. When we don't have power in our inner being, we're crushed whenever things don't go our way. Right? We have a plan, we have a way that we want things to go. When they don't go our way, it is devastating. We're not resilient. When we don't have power in our inner being, our trust in God is easily shaken right? by every hardship, every disappointment. And when we don't have strength in our inner being, it's not a fun way to live, right? Look at this list, okay? When, you, when you're living in this way, it's not fun, right? And so Paul prayed, may God strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That is what we need. We don't need the ring of power, we need the character to not be corrupted by the ring. Okay, let's look at the second thing that Paul prays for. Number two, Paul prays that you may grasp how big God's love is. That you may grasp how big God's love is. Verse 17 is amazing. Look at it again. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, there's that word power again, right? Paul prays that we might have power. But again, the power that he's asking for is not the kind of power that we often think of when we think of power. 
power to grasp how big the love of God is. Think about what an incredible statement that is, what that is assuming. Okay? What that prayer is assuming is that God's love is so great that you need some sort of supernatural revelation to recognize it. It's not just common sense. It's not something that's just obvious. You need power from God to grasp how high and wide and long and deep it is. Okay, now you might ask, well, if that's true, I need this special revelation to know this love. How do I get that revelation? How do I experience it? Well, notice the extravagant love is specifically the love of Christ, right? So if we want to know how wide and high and long and deep is the love of God, we have to know Jesus. We can't know that love without knowing Jesus. The way that the revelation comes to us is through him. Now, of course, there are lots of people out there who do not believe in Jesus specifically, but they do have some belief in the love of God, right? But you cannot know the extravagant dimensions of God's love apart from knowing Christ. The pastor and author, Tim Keller, he tells a story about how at his church, they would have a Q&A session after every service. And one Sunday, a woman came to the church who uh, was not a Christian, but she, she did come to the Q&A uh, time. She didn't particularly like the sermon, um, so she wanted to let her thoughts be known. And at one point, she said, look, I believe in God. I believe in a God of love, but I don't believe in Christ. And I don't think you need Christ to believe in a God of love. And so Tim Keller said, well, you know, I, I would agree and I disagree at the same time. Because, well, let me put it this way. What did it cost your God to love you? And she said, well, nothing. And he said, well, that's what I mean. You cannot know the depths of God's love apart from knowing Christ, because when you know Christ, you know that God took on flesh and suffered and died on a cross to bear the sins of the world. That's how the revelation of the extravagant love of God comes to us. Right? I, I can think of no better way to begin to grasp the love of God than to think about that moment when Jesus is on the cross and he looks down on the people who put him there and he, said, he prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Meditate on that for a while if you want an idea of how high and wide and deep and long is the love of God. You know, as long as we just think of God as the big guy upstairs or um, the almighty one or the great spirit or the life force that animates the universe, as long as we think of God in those terms, we'll never know the depths of the love of God. 
But when we think of Jesus and we think of the cross, then the revelation comes to us. Now Paul prays that the church would be rooted and established in love. And I want us to think about that for a moment. Rooted and established in love. Rooted and established in whose love? Well, of course, the love of Christ. This love that is extravagant beyond what we can imagine. That love of Christ is supposed to root and establish the church. Now, those words there represent two metaphors. So the first one is agricultural, and the second one is architectural. So first one, rooted, agricultural. Paul is saying that the church is supposed to be like a plant, and the roots that nourish the plant are supposed to be what? The love of Christ. And then that second word, established, uh, it's, in the Greek, it's the same word as for a foundation. So it's an architectural metaphor, right? And it's saying that the foundation of the church, what the church is supposed to be built upon is, again, what? The love of Christ. So if any church, any local church, is going to be healthy, if it's going to be what it's supposed to be, it needs to emphasize the love of Christ. Right? Trust in that love is supposed, to what, is supposed to be what keeps us alive and keeps us standing. It's what's supposed to nourish us and keep us from collapsing. Our spiritual health is directly connected to us grasping the love of God, to trusting and believing that he really does love us. Like, it's not just words. It's true. And if we do not trust in that love, we will wither like plants in the desert. We will collapse like a home that's built on sand. Now, what does it mean that God really, really does love us? Well, I mean, it, this is probably obvious, but I'll just say it anyway. I mean, it doesn't mean that he always wants the same thing for us that we want for ourselves, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that he never wants to challenge us or encourage us to grow or change at all. What it means is that God is completely and utterly committed to blessing us. Real blessing, not fake, shallow, false blessing. But he is utterly committed to leading us towards real life, real peace, real joy. Anybody here who is a parent knows that love doesn't always mean giving your child whatever they want, right? Sometimes your child wants to play in the oven and you have to say no, right? And sometimes your child wants to be really selfish and controlling, and you have to try to cultivate better character in them, lead them in a different direction, right? And the same is true in our relationship with God. Now, in those moments, if you are a parent, when you try to do that with their, your children, they may accuse you of being unloving, right? But you know that in that moment, that is as far from the truth as possible. It's precisely because you love them that you are committed to guiding them towards being the best possible version of themselves, right? 
So we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes God's love towards us takes the form of discipline, correction, calls to repent. But to trust in God's love is to recognize that all of that is motivated by his love for us. It's not because he's harsh. It's not because he's cruel or authoritarian or anything like that. He is motivated by a love that is better than what we can grasp and comprehend with our natural minds. It is a love that refuses to give up on us and refuses to settle for us having anything less than real life, real joy, real peace. Finally, the third thing that Paul prays for, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does that mean? Well, it means to be so full of God's spirit that we have become who we are meant to be. If I were to summarize that statement with one word, it's mature. To become mature. When we're mature, we're not just able to recognize God's love for us, but we're also able to now start imitating that love to those around us. So Paul's prayer is that the church would become mature, that we would become Christ-like, that our faith would not be shallow but deep. Now, you might be thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm supposed to get better. I'm supposed to try harder. I'm supposed to get more and more mature. I know. I get it. But what I want us to notice is that this prayer is very much connected to the one that just came before it. Okay, this, is, this, this connection here is very important. Paul says, I pray that you know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So what Paul is saying here is, how do you become spiritually mature? You become spiritually mature by knowing this love. By knowing that God really does love you. That is the path to maturity. Now, for some of us, that might sound counterintuitive, right? You want to be mature? Okay, well then believe and trust that God really does love you. Really? That's the way? Isn't the way to maturity like fraught with fear and paranoia? And, like, isn't that the way you get there? No. You know, when you think about it, we see this relationship between love and maturity in parent-child relationships too, right? Children who grow up knowing, being secure that mom and dad love them, uh, they are more likely to develop into healthy and mature adults. Back in the 1940s, a psychoanalyst named Rene Spitz found that one out of three babies who were uh, in London orphanages died. And among those that didn't die, they almost universally had cognitive, behavioral, and psychological dysfunctions. And 
he found the problem was not that they lacked basic necessities like food and water and shelter and medicine for illnesses and that they had all of those things. Their basic physical needs were being met, but the problem was what they would call emotional and sensory deprivation, which we would really call love. Lack of love, lack of affection. Children need to be rooted and established in the love of parental figures. And if they're not, they struggle to thrive. And the same is true of us in our relationship with God, regardless of our age. In order to thrive, we need to be rooted and established in the love of God. And we just don't reach maturity apart from that. We're insecure, we're fearful, we're anxious, we're hard to get along with. Let's look at those last couple verses again. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now those words are often quoted. They're used sometimes for benedictions at churches, and for good reason, right? Inspiring, beautiful words. God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. If you want proof that the Bible doesn't want us to become cynical, here it is, right? Immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. But before we get carried away thinking that God wants us to expect a million dollar salary in a yacht, let's keep in mind the context, right? Paul just said that he's praying that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he says that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So what does Paul have in mind when he says that God can do immeasurably more? He's saying that God can fill us to the measure of the fullness of God more than we can ask or imagine. So in other words, God can bring us to maturity more than we can ask or imagine, more than we can expect, which means he can transform us as his church into people who reflect the extravagant dimensions of God's love more than we can ask or imagine. So, so often we hear that passage and, and we may think, oh, God can do for me more than I can imagine. And we, we think about it kind of in selfish terms. But what Paul is more saying is that God, through the church, can do more than we would ever expect that he could do through us to bless each other and the world. You see the difference there? Immeasurably more. And again, I will say this. I mean, I know that throughout history, the church has made a lot of mistakes. The church has failed in a lot of ways. The church has been hypocritical in a lot of ways and continues to be hypocritical in a lot of ways. And that's, 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 that's sad and terrible and we should repent of that, right? But we should not be cynical because God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. 
But how does that start? With being rooted and established in the love of Christ. That's what it all flows out of. So, God can do immeasurably more in and through us if we are rooted and established. If we are confident that he is for us, not against us. If we are confident that he wants to bless us, to truly bless us. If we are confident that he is willing to pay the cost, and he has, to rescue us. So let's be confident, right? Let's trust in the depths of his love. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this reminder this morning uh, that you are calling us to trust that you really do love us. And Lord, I pray that if our hearts have become hardened in some way uh, to believing in that love, uh, Lord, I pray that you would soften them again, uh, that you would remove any scales from our eyes and help us to see you as you truly are, uh, help us to see you through the lens of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we see you for who, who you are, as we are rooted and established in love, uh, make us more and more into a church that reflects who you are to the world. Uh, Lord, we ask for immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine that you would do that uh, through us. In Jesus' name, amen.